Brian Nichols, you're a great man with some great ideas, a great podcast. Do you see why he's my favorite libertarian people? <laughs> yes. He's full of common sense and wisdom. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. Today I'm joined by easily one of the best of the best, Matt Kitty. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. Hey, Brian. It's good to be with you. By the way, let me take a step back and say I love what you're doing. I love the conversational style, and it's a combination of good fun and serious ideas. I love the fact that your show's doing what it does, and, and this is how we win the future. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest-growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. There's so many things that we can do to make America freer and the world better and safer and more peaceful. Everybody has the responsibility of trying to help to do that. You know, what you're doing with your podcast is a perfect example of, you know, you're doing this as a labor of love and for the cause, and that is exactly what we have to have. At The Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. Hey folks, Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving and hopefully you're getting back into the swing of things. And hope you had a great time with your fa- friends and family there for the uh, the holiday. Uh, but with that being said, I wanted to uh, do another uh, kind of throwback episode this week. This time we're going back to an episode from 2017 with John Ziegler from Mediate. Had a great chance to discuss Trump, uh, the GOP, conservative movement, and libertarian movement in a post-Trump era. So with that being said, we're going back to our normal scheduling next week. I hope you have a fantastic time here this weekend with your friends and family. But until next week, we'll see you then. So, uh, welcome to the Around the Republic podcast. I'm your host, uh, Brian Nichols, and today uh, got another one of our great interview guests uh, to continue with the discussion on a post-Trump uh, movement for the conservative movement and the libertarian movements going forward. Uh, you know him from Mediate, uh, feature radio host John Ziegler. John, thanks for joining. Uh, thanks for having me, Brian. I really do appreciate. It. I know you're a busy guy, so um, you know, definitely do appreciate you taking some time to uh, to speak with uh, speak with me today. And uh, you have a lot of insight in the uh, political atmosphere. Um, you know, with your experience, I know you did a really good uh, documentary back uh, after the 08 election. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Media malpractice, right? That's what it was called. Media uh, malpractice. How Obama got elected. So uh, I know you you were pretty staunch defender there of uh, Sarah Palin, and uh, you really focused on, in the documentary, how the media was able to formulate a narrative uh, that was truly anti-Palin. They made her look like an idiot. Uh, I know you focused on, you know, the Tina Fey skit and SNL, uh, the, I forget that the host that you called out there on MSNBC, you know, saying how she said that uh, Sarah Palin said that Obama was a terrorist or supporter of the terrorists. Um so looking at what you focused on in 08 with the media malpractice, let's fast forward to 2016. Did you see similar um, practices being done by the media to help either A, prop up Hillary Clinton or B, um, to utilize the Trump uh, wave essentially to get their ratings up and then to use that in turn to attack him? There were a lot of similarities. Uh, and just to address the Sarah Palin issue, I'm, you know, I'm I was a very staunch defender of Sarah Palin for a couple of years after that election and kind of became an informal advisor and spokesperson and strongest media defender. But what ended up happening, and this is a a very strange phenomenon that I have seen occur in other major news stories. Oftentimes, people, and this is going to sound 
strange, but oftentimes people become the media narrative that they are made out to be. Uh, it, it's a very odd, um, but uh, Sarah Palin in 2008, 2009 was not the person the media made her out to be. Uh, I can understand why people believe that she became <laughs> absolutely yeah. <laughs> uh, um, what the media made her out to be. But in a weird way, she needed to become what the media made her out to be in order to stay famous and get rich. And, that, and to my credit, and I got a lot of heat for this, and this was not in my own self-interest, I separated myself from her uh, immediately after realizing that that's exactly what she was doing, which was selling her soul in order to stay famous and get rich. Uh, it didn't help me at all in any way, <laughs> shape, or form. Uh, it, it hurt me in a lot of ways. Uh, but for people who care about consistency and credibility, you can you can check it out for yourself. So, um, you know, so that's that's the thing on Sarah Palin. As far as 2016 is concerned, there are a lot of similarities between what happened with Donald Trump and what happened with Barack Obama. And I know that Trump supporters hate hearing that, <laughs> but uh, it was remarkably similar. In both situations, you had circumstances where the news media gave him unbelievably uh, positive and unprecedented access to their airwaves during the primaries when neither one was thought to have much of a chance of winning the nomination, but but both were very good for ratings and both were very good for the narrative. You have to remember, in 2008, the media was bracing for an incredibly boring Hillary Clinton slog to the nomination until this bright, new, shiny object, Barack Obama, came along. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in 2016... Trump was actually Obama on steroids with regard to the ratings and the interest and all the fun news that was being created on a daily basis. And somewhat similar to what Clinton's biggest mistake with Obama was, which was taking him too lightly until it was too late, the Republican, the real Republican candidates did the same thing with Trump. They all thought that Trump was going to implode on his own. Now, I did not believe that. Um, I wrote a column back in November of 2015 where I took on Nate Silver, who was saying uh, that Republicans shouldn't be freaking out about Trump's poll numbers. I said, that's ridiculous. You absolutely should be freaking about it, freaking <laughs> out about his poll numbers because he might win the nomination. And even if he doesn't, he's, he's absolutely going to destroy the process to the point where it's going to be very difficult for uh, us to win. Now, I did not think he was going to win the general election. And I think that's part of why the news media did what they did. It was a win. They thought it was a win-win-win for them. Right. And in, in, in some ways, it, it did turn out to be a win-win-win for them, except for the fact that Hillary didn't become president. I think they thought, hey, this is awesome for ratings. It makes our job incredibly easy. We don't have to do any reporting. We just got to sit back and watch and laugh <laughs> and, and uh, reap in the rewards. And, oh, by the way, Hillary's going to get the easiest candidate to beat. And, you know, they philosophically, they, they clearly want Hillary to win. What a lot of people um, don't understand about the media is that there are multiple agendas at work. And while the liberal agenda is still very clear in, you know, the vast majority of the major outlets, 
it's not always the one that wins the day. Right. <laughs> the, the one that wins the day is quite often they'll take the ratings narrative over their own liberal agenda uh, at the drop of a hat because the number one goal of media, big media people is to uh, – there's two goals. Uh, keep your cushy job and not have to work hard. Uh, th- those are the two things that are most important to them. Uh, pursuing the liberal agenda is usually third, fourth, or fifth on the list. Right. Depending on who they are. And uh, Trump absolutely fulfilled the first two qualifications during the primaries and also during the general election. And I think during the general election uh, – I think the fact that the media was so certain that Trump was going to lose, and I was certain he was going to lose as well. Although, let's be clear, he lost the popular vote by three million votes. Exactly. <laughs> and he only got 40. And, and part of, you know, I've taken a lot of heat, and understandably, for saying Trump couldn't win. But, you know, the, the foundation of my uh, prediction that he couldn't win turned out to be true. Exactly. With, with the, because, the popular vote. Well, it wasn't just the popular vote. It's more specific than that. I kept saying, I left, I mean, because I'm a former pollster myself and I, I'm a numbers guy, there is no way he gets over 46% of the vote. And there's no way Hillary gets less than 47% of the vote. And under those circumstances, in every other election in American history, <laughs> that's, you can't win. Right. <laughs> Especially under the Electoral College circumstances of today. Well, he pulled an inside straight that was unbelievably lucky that even the Trump people did not expect. Uh, If if less than 100,000 votes go in the other direction in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, Hillary is president. Uh, And and she ends up winning, by the way, with 48% of the vote. He gets 46% of the vote and loses by 3 million votes. So there are only two states in which Trump pulled anything what I would call close to a miracle. One was in Florida. One was in Pennsylvania, where he did get a significant uh, portion of the vote that was greater than what Mitt Romney had gotten against a much, much, much more difficult opponent in an incumbent president, Barack Obama, who people actually liked, rather than Hillary Clinton, who nobody liked. Uh, other than Pennsylvania and Florida, there's not a, a state of any significance where Trump did better than Romney, significantly better than Romney did against a much more difficult opponent that Romney had. So um, anyway, the point of th- this is that, yeah, there are a lot of similarities between 2016 and 2008, including, by the way, the cult-like following oh, that, yeah. Trump, that Trump uh has that is really just you know mindless and the Bill Mitchells of the world. Oh well, there's ways even worse than Bill Mitchell. By the way, I had Bill Mitchell on my podcast a month or two ago, and he hung up on me in the middle of the interview for no reason. <laughs> the guy's a complete coward. So, um, but they, I, I actually, I didn't think I would see anything like Obama mania. Um, and, and those people were mindless, and it, it was a religion, and Obama was a god, but. I think this is worse. I mean, maybe I think it's worse because it's my own people or people who I thought were my own people mm-hmm. up until this that are uh, are are in what I refer to as cult forty five uh, <laughs> since he's the forty fifth president, and you know it's kind of a takeoff on the old Billy D. Williams uh, cult forty five commercials. Only mm-hmm. in this case, in this case, they'll believe him every time. 
Uh, and that's what they do. No matter what he says, no matter how ridiculous it is, no matter how contradictory it is, no matter how, how much of a lie it is, no matter how much how liberal it might be, they believe it. Yep. And and part of the reason why they believe it, see, I, I think there are basically two types of people when it comes to Donald Trump. Do you see Donald Trump as the Wizard of Oz? Or do you see Donald Trump as the guy behind the curtain who doesn't have a clue what's going on and he's just trying to uh, you know, pull off a scam? <laughs> uh, obviously, I'm in the latter category, but his his cult base thinks that he's the Wizard of Oz. Right. And the reason they think he's the Wizard of Oz is because he pulled off two miracles. One, he won the nomination, and two, he, he killed the Wicked Witch uh, in Hillary Clinton. That's and an so, excellent analogy. I love that analogy. That's great. So, so for those two reasons, they will always think of him as the wizard. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to do anything else. He's always going to be the wizard, even though he's really the old guy behind the curtain without a clue and without <laughs> real powers and he's not going to do anything real for you. He, he might give you a, a, a um, you know, a, a fake diploma to make you think that you um, are smart, but it's actually from Trump University. And so therefore, it's <laughs> so I know, John, you you were pretty you know, never Trump throughout the entire election cycle. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You were a Scott Walker guy at first. Then uh, Scott was out. Then Marco Rubio, correct? Wow. You, you paid pretty close attention. Yeah. Uh, for the record, I mean, <clears throat> to me, and I think I was vindicated in this, although no one will accept this. Accept this. I think, in a weird way, Trump vindicated my view about Scott Walker, and that is, I strongly believe that Scott Walker had the best map to winning. He was the conservative with the best map to win. Uh, and if you look at the final map, <laughs> yep, tell me that's not the map that Scott Walker would have won with. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and, and, Pennsylvania yep. and, and uh, in Ohio and Florida. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I will maintain that Scott Walker, if he had been the nominee, would have won exactly with that map. He would have won Iowa, too. And um, and so, uh, you know, I never anticipated, nor did what I wanted uh, Trump to win anyway, uh, under any, any map, but, um, but that, you know, the fact that Scott Walker was like the second or third guy out is really an indication of just how incredibly broken mm. the entire process is because oh, I know Scott Walker is not exciting. Um, but guess what? Uh, this is not intended to be a sexual, uh, experience folks. Um, the, and we're, we're picking uh, the leader of the free world, and uh, Scott Walker was qualified. He was conservative. He was tough as nails, as he's proven in Wisconsin. I think he would have made a great president. Uh, and Marco Rubio, you know, was the next choice mainly because I thought he was also electable mm -hmm. and a conservative. He's not. Uh, he certainly doesn't have the backbone that Scott Walker has. But he also, um, you know, would have appealed to Hispanics a lot more than certainly Trump did. And it's important to point out about Rubio. <laughs> And, you know, of course, the Trump fans are so dumb. <laughs> I mean, you know, could you please take a look at the Florida vote re results and, and uh, explain to me um, how, you know, cause, because they'll tell you, oh, well, Rubio was so electable. How did Trump beat him in his own state of Florida? <laughs> uh, you morons, it's because that was a primary. Exactly. Uh, with multiple candidates. In a general election with only two candidates, 
Look who got more votes in Florida. Mm -hmm. It was Marco Rubio. And in fact, you could argue, and this is one of the untold stories of this election, you could argue that Trump ended up winning the election on the coattails of two Republican senatorial candidates in Florida and Pennsylvania who were actually conservatives, mm -hmm. uh, who um, he would not have won those states without them. And both of them outperformed uh, – Trump uh, was outperformed by both of them. By a great margin, too. I'm sorry? By, by, a, by a big margin, too, he was outperformed by the, uh, the senatorial candidates. Yes. And, and again, against a very poor candidate in Hillary Clinton. So uh, – but I realize that these are facts and numbers and Trumpsters aren't very good at math and they certainly don't like facts. So <laughs> I realize this is all very problematic. So I know one thing that you, you stated before the election – I think it was like the week before – you said pretty much conservative values will die if Trump loses. Um because of the people basically selling their souls voting for Trump. Well, Trump won, which, you know, that's still we can argue how that happened. But um, Trump won. And now he is essentially the de facto face. And I'm using air quotes here of the conservative movement, because obviously he's not a conservative. He's barely a Republican. He's I mean, right. he is, in essence, the epitome of a rhino. I mean, he truly is a Republican in name only. Um, what do you look at right now? as the conservative landscape moving forward with Trump as the face of that movement? And how do you recapture what is true conservatism for those who have essentially, like you said, hashtag cult 45, um, that are in that mindset of Trumpism versus conservatism? Well, first of all, I'll have to take your word for it. And uh, that I said that if Trump loses, conservatism is, is dead. Um, I, I think I probably would have felt no matter what. Uh, conservatism is dead. I just didn't really consider uh, that there was much of a chance that uh, that Trump would win. Um, my my hope, just back up a second, maybe this will explain my answer. You know, I took a lot of heat because I actually thought that people in certain states should vote for Hitler, Hillary if they were conservative. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason why I felt this way was that I thought Trump needed to be defeated soundly for conservatism to survive. Mm -hmm. I think maybe what you're maybe what you're referring to is that if he loses narrowly, yeah, uh, th I thought that conservatism was dead because at that point he would remain a significant figure for years to come and he would have changed everything even if he hadn't won. Now that he's won, uh, I think conservatism is in even worse shape. <laughs> yep. Um, uh, because now I have no idea what we stand for. Uh, the only thing I think we I, I'm pretty sure we we stand for is anything uh, against anything that Nancy Pelosi says um, or maybe Chuck Schumer says. And um, and we are never to criticize Donald Trump. We can we, we, we will usually defend him. But some things will just say, you know what, well, I'm not going to comment on that or, you know, that's troubling. <laughs> but um, but those seem to be the rule, the new rules of conservatism. Never attack Donald Trump. And if you do so, only do it for a day and then forget about and it. And move on. Um, and and always criticize the media and Nancy Pelosi. Those seems those seem to be our two principles. Um, and you know, I'm sorry, I that's not what I signed up for. That's not what I was interested in. And I'm his anti media guy, and I can't stand Nancy Pelosi. That's what's so bizarre about <laughs> this to me. I mean, I, I'm the most anti media guy in the world, 
And uh, and I think that these attacks uh, on the media are incredibly cynical and they're not fact based. See, I mean, you know, I, I was once very close to Andrew Breitbart. Mm hmm. And um, although we had a falling out before his death. And I think Andrew would be horrified by Trump's uh, war on the media because it's not fact based. It's not substance based. It's based solely in self-preservation. That's all it is. If it was fact based, if Trump came out on a daily basis and said, all right, media, you got this wrong, this wrong, this wrong. Here's why you got it wrong. And here's. And here's what really happened. I would be great with that. That'd be phenomenal. But that's not what happens. He just now has created this fake news narrative because it's you know something he can tweet uh, whenever he's criticized, and his cult will go, yeah. So, <laughs> um, and that's that's not helpful. It's not accurate. It's it's wrong. And it hurts our discourse. Well, that I think it does that too. But you know, so as far as where conservatism is, I. I don't see how it survives out of this. I, 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 someone can paint me a picture or, or, or a path where any semblance of conservatism survives, but I, I don't see it. I mean, hell, you know, it, it's about a 50-50 shot right now that with a Republican president, Republican Congress, and Republican Senate, we're going to end up passing a health care bill that, <laughs> that uh, eight, nine years ago, Democrats would have been thrilled with. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um, it's, it's not a repeal of Obamacare. It's a, it's basically a, a, um, you know, remolding of Obamacare with Republicans now going to have to take the blame if it passes for everything <laughs> uh, forever. How about, how about that? The Republican party now is going to own uh, largely government subsidized healthcare forever. So Democrats get, you know, even if it passes, most of what they want and now none of the blame. Nice work, guys. God bless. Um, and that actually leads to the main point of this uh, interview series I'm doing. And you focus on, uh, I guess, really values that we share as conservatives, as true Republicans, libertarians, uh, and even some moderates. I know, you know, there's the the old adage, my, my 80% ally is not my 20% enemy. So... How do you see coming from – I know you self-identify as like a conservatarian. Um, how do you see a path forward where libertarians, conservatives, Republicans, uh, you know, the never Trump moderate Republicans or, you know, whatever the never Trump Republicans want to identify as, how do we move forward with some unifying uh, movement that we can at least focus on those 80 percent similarities versus the 20 percent uh, differences? Oh, man. I know. That's a big one. <laughs> I, I wish I had an answer to that. Um, look, I mean, I realize that we live in a world where things can change incredibly fast. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, to me, I see Trumpism as a cancer. Mm-hmm. And unless and until that cancer is completely removed, uh, there's there's no there's no healing it. But unfortunately... In removing that cancer, uh, and this is the big fear of the Republican Party has, you would <clears throat> fracture the party so much that it would become a massive minority party, and <clears throat> you would, you know, then you'd let Nancy Pelosi back in charge and whoever, whatever uh, Democratic candidate they can they can put forward. So, uh, you know, then we're going to be screwed forever. So, 
I, I, I don't know what I, I honestly don't see a path because what I think we found out in 2016 is that there is no conservative coalition. There's no there, mm-hmm. there's, it just doesn't exist. Uh, you know, this this populist nationalist cult 45 thing uh, is really the only way <clears throat> now. I mean, now that that cat is out of the bag. Right. See, see. My big thing on Trump all along has been the price we are going to pay in the long run is so enormous. And, and, and it's it's in things that people haven't even contemplated yet. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, how the hell in the future do we ever nominate a remotely uh, electable candidate in a presidential primary? Mm-hmm. How does that happen? Because Because now – after you've had Trump, who, who's going to possibly get the the quote quote unquote base excited? Uh, and 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 before you know we successfully did this with McCain and Romney, our side was able to you know the rational side was able to to make the electability argument. Well, you, you have to go with this guy because he's more electable. By the way, just because they lost doesn't mean they weren't the most electable folks. Yep. I realize that's, that's a difficult concept for some people. Um, but, you know, if you lose a football game, it doesn't mean you would have won if you put in your third string quarterback. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the um, so the problem now, though, becomes for at least a generation now, uh, these nitwits are always going to say "fuck you" with the you know electability argument. We we went with Trump, and look what happened with that. You told us Trump couldn't win, so you know um, y- y- what's wrong with Ted Nugent or um, you know or whoever whatever, The Rock, yeah, you know whoever else they might come up with um, to excite themselves. So I, I know, and, and and by the way, the news media now. Um, you know, the quote unquote conservative media, which is now really the state run news media mm-hmm. is is their business model now is based upon someone exciting. Uh, they're they're going to go who up for whoever is the most exciting and the most, you know, most uh, ratings friendly. Yep. That's what that's what they're going to do. So it's hard to imagine at this point a scenario where uh, where we can change anything. No, absolutely. And, um, you know, one thing. I, I'm looking forward now. I gotta plug my, my own guy here a little bit. So, uh, out in Missouri, uh, Austin Peterson is looking to run for, um, you know, Senate. I know that's been explored. Um, and I know there's a big announcement coming up July 4th. Um, now prior to him doing all this stuff exploring Senate, uh, he, um, was the number two candidate for the Libertarian Party, uh, came in second to what ultimately ended up being Gary Johnson. And prior to Gary Johnson getting, getting the nomination hi. for the LP, hi. <laughs> um, My daughter Grace has joined the interview, if that's welcome, okay. Welcome, Grace. Oh, absolutely. We always love having fun guests on. Um, my cat's sitting here right now, half asleep, so I'm sure he'll wake up and he'll join as well. Um, so prior to, you know, uh, Gary winning the, the nomination for the LP, there was a lot of never Trump Republicans looking for another answer. And I know Glenn Beck, I know uh, Eric Erickson, Liz Mayer, um, you, know, you go down the line of all these never Trump conservatives, they were looking to Austin Peterson as like, you know, their, their only hope going forward to be able to cast the, the vote for someone other than Donald Trump and still feel like their principles weren't destroyed. So 
would would you have looked at someone like an Austin Peterson as a viable alternative to what was Trumpism or you know the the Clinton machine if that had indeed turned into an option? I don't know. I, I'm very skeptical of you know any outside Hi. outside of the mainstream <laughs> candidates. I mean, the success is is obviously horrendous mm-hmm. uh, in this country. I I I you know maybe someday. I don't think we're we're there yet. I, I you know it's quite possible that we could fragment into three or four different you know major parties at some point. Um, um excuse me, Grace. What what did you want to say about Trump? I know you have some strong opinions. Grace is five years old, and she's been struggling with the Trump question herself. What do you think of Trump? Uh, I think he's a bad guy. You think he's, he's a, a bad guy? Why do you think he's a bad guy? Because he does, because he always doesn't listen to people. He doesn't listen to people. Yeah, you, you, Grace, you used the term Trumpsters to me the other day. What's a Trumpster? Oh no! You know what a Trumpster is. What did you say a Trumpster is? You told me. What's it, what, what? You told me a Trumpster is a stupid person. That's what you told me. <laughs> <laughs> that, that maybe you forgot, but. Okay, can I continue my conversation with Brian, Grace? But can can I talk to Brian? One well, minute? real quick, say something to Brian. I have a book about Trump and me. Oh, that's actually true. Yeah. Um, there was a there's a book that was just written called uh, "How Do I uh, Talk to My Kids About This." I think that's the title, mm-hmm. which is a uh, a compilation of different essays about Donald Trump's election and what we tell our kids. And I wrote a column uh, about what I would tell Grace about Donald Trump. And Diana. And we have, I have another daughter, Diana, too, who just okay. got born. Oh, congratulations. So, um, yes, yeah, so Grace is, Grace is mentioned in that book about whether or not uh, we should still honor the truth in the era of Trump. And my conclusion was basically not. <laughs> <laughs> So, so basically, Grace Grace he, is a superstar now. Essentially, is what you're saying, John. Grace, do you ever lie? No. Uh, of course not. I think sometimes you do. <laughs> Come on, Daddy. What kind of question is that? Of course, Grace doesn't lie. <laughs> okay. So anyway, <laughs> so Brian, is there something else you want to you talk about? I, I I think I can get Grace to uh, to cooperate here. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess going forward, um, you know, I I love looking for. Uh, individuals both on the left and the right that we can kind of come to some common out like common ground and have rational conversations. So I guess we'll conclude with this one question. How do we in the age of Trump have rational, logical, emotionless conversations to actually find some way to move forward? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that that's possible. I, I I mean, he doesn't allow it. Um, it was it wasn't possible really before Trump, mm-hmm. but now after Trump, I mean, Trump doesn't even accept what the basic realities of the world yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you don't accept what the what the basic facts are, you know, if, if you're using quote unquote alternative facts, <laughs> um, then you can't have a conversation. I mean, that that's the basics of any conversation. You have. You know, to use the book analogy, you know, I, I, it, you, it's hard to um, talk about a book 
when um, one person's reading it in English and the, the other is reading it in a language no one understands. Oh, um, so so um, that's really where we are. And I, I know I'm not known as an optimist, but I look, I I can usually see a scenario out of almost anything where there's a path to survival. And I, I just don't see it. I, I, I just don't see there has to be a, a black swan event. Um, that that changes everything, and you know, for those who think, by the way, that Trump is going to be removed from office, or I, I just don't see that. I mean, I think he might. I, I think he might get impeached if, if uh, you know, the Democrats take the House. But even then, I think he'll survive because they won't have enough votes in the Senate. And and I even think there's a. I think there's a reasonable chance that an, an impeached Donald Trump wins re-election because the Democrats can't come up with a decent candidate. <laughs> and so, I mean, and then, by the way, uh, you know, it'll be hilarious to watch an, a guy who was impeached by the Democrats uh, use his second term to do everything the Democrats ever dreamed of doing but couldn't pull off themselves. Mm -hmm. So that's really the, that to me is the ultimate way for this whole thing to end is for, <laughs> for an impeached Donald Trump to do a second term as a Democrat <laughs> or, or sweet me to your death. How about that? Yeah, there you go. Grace, <laughs> what do you think about that scenario? Do you think that's that's possible? Uh, what's possible? The, the, do you think an impeached Donald Trump could win a re-election? No. No? Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I think, and, and you know what? I think Grace is right, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> well, John, you know, thank you again for joining. Um, you know, really do appreciate your time. Um, and obviously, it's going to be an interesting four years, to say the least. Um, but between now and then, let's... Uh, We'll have to do this again. I'm, I'm curious to see how things turn out after 2018's uh, midterms, and uh, hopefully we can reconvene. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, Grace, you want to say goodbye? Bye. Bye, Grace. Thanks for joining us. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks, John. All right. This is Brian for the Around the uh, Republic podcast, interviewing John Ziegler from Mediaite. Uh, we'll be uh, back next week. Until then, economic freedom, personal responsibility. See ya. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com.